Welcome to Pod Parks, a podcast for the park-minded, brought to you by World Urban Parks. In this podcast, we'll embark on a journey through the world of parks, from intimate community parks to sprawling urban national parks and everything in between. Join us as we explore the beauty and diversity of these urban oases. Meet the individuals and organizations working tirelessly to preserve and improve them. Our guide will be Alice Landin, Research Development Advisor for World Urban Parks. So come along as we rediscover the green spaces that make our cities livable. Welcome back to Pod Parks. We are nearing the end of our first season, and I'm just thrilled to get a chance to chat with all of you. You heard that correctly. This is the second to last episode of our first season of Pod Parks. It's been so much fun up until now, and I cannot wait to share what we have in store for next season. But I just wanted to take a moment to share my gratitude to all of you who have been with us from the start and to those who joined us along the way. Your support has made this podcast a reality. But let's not get too sentimental just yet. There's still one more episode to go. So I'm going to stop now and let you all enjoy your episode. In 2010, a devastating hurricane hit my hometown. For three days, it rained relentlessly, and massive currents led by 40-mile-hour wind wrecked havoc through the city, ripping apart pavements, flooding houses, causing widespread destruction, and leaving thousands of people without basic necessities for weeks. And the river that ran a couple of miles away from my house overflowed, changing and adapting its course to engulf larger parts of the surrounding parkland, ebbing and flowing and of course taking everything in its way. And just a couple of weeks later, the river was back to its original pace as if nothing had happened. Sadly, this has become an all too familiar urban experience in many parts of the world. Climate change is intensifying extreme weather events, such as heavy rain, floods, wildfires, and drought, impacting cities big and small. What was once considered rare is now becoming the new normal. And as our cities grow hotter and more unpredictable, we're starting to realize just how important it is to design our urban environments to mitigate these risks. The disasters we've experienced in the past few years are just the beginning of this new reality of a warmer world. So building resilient cities moving forward is essential to have a livable future. So let's talk about resilience. Climate change is a complex issue and addressing it requires mitigating carbon emissions to reduce its intensity, as well as adapting our communities to withstand its effects. Now, the last few months have highlighted some of the growing climate challenges in urban settings around the world, with both sudden weather events like last week's wildfires across Canada, as well as slow onset events like increasing temperatures all around the world. These phenomenons have reminded us that we have to develop solutions and implement actions to respond to these current impacts as well as whatever might come in the near future. In the context of climate change, resilience is defined as a capacity to prepare, respond, and recover from the impacts of climatic events. In other words, the capacity to anticipate and recover from shock 
and transform our cities to better manage climate risk. Building resilience takes time, and it requires making system-wide changes to increase our capacity to deal with extreme weather events and other climate catastrophes. And that is where parks come in. So it's new, but I would, it, you would almost call the desire to make cities more adaptable and adapting better to climate change is almost a mega trend because whilst Green Adelaide is, is relatively unique in the way it's formed, yeah. uh, other cities in Australia, um, and I know this around the world as, as well, are trying to do similar things. They've just got different structures by which to do it. Um, this is Brenton Greer. Director of Green Adelaide at the Department for Environment and Water in Adelaide, Australia. One of Green Adelaide's key visions is to make Adelaide a more resilient city and region. So, so Green Adelaide, so in terms of adapting the city, um, there's, there's a number of things. Um, one is to collect the evidence to actually uh, show ourselves but inform our programs and when I say our I really mean the whole city the whole all of the governance organizations local state government community NGOs so one of those and there's an important project on at the moment uh, to have the I guess the single point of truth in terms of how much tree canopy we have what's our urban heat looking like across the region and, and other things like greenness indicators. And we're putting that together in a um, greening prioritisation tool mm -hmm. using socio-demographic aspects as well to, work, to help us to know where do we need to take on-ground works. Gathering information with regards to parks and climate change is one of the very first steps that cities are taking to quantify the relationships between green spaces and climate action. After all, we know parks play a crucial role in creating cities that can adapt to climate change and withstand extreme weather events. For starters, green spaces act as stormwater collectors, slowing down, filtering, and absorbing water where it falls, slowly returning it to groundwater systems and preventing it from running off paved roads and large sewers at fast speed. When we design parks with stormwater retention in mind, incorporating features like streams, rain gardens, dense vegetation and other green infrastructure, we can better manage the water cycles throughout the year and reduce erosion. Another example is trees. Increasing the tree canopy across a city or region can help reduce the heat island effect and manage strong wind flows. Designing green infrastructure for resilience also often means rewilding our green spaces and restoring some of their original conditions, reintroducing native species and leveraging the original physical forms of our green places can ensure that when extreme weather events like heavy rains or flash floods do arise, our green spaces are equipped to do their job and act as a buffer to reduce the most harmful effects of these events. Green Adelaide itself does a few iconic projects, so we do things on ground, um, and one of those is um, uh, Breakout Creek, uh, and so that is the restoration of the downstream reach of the River Torrens that runs through Adelaide that is actually partially um, uh, artificial. Um, a lot of our rivers across the plains in Adelaide never reach the, um, 
the sea. They actually stopped in reed beds and wetlands, and that shows you we're not a city that has a lot of water. Yeah. Anyway, um, this particular river was cut to the sea, uh, and it's been there since you know it's been a hundred years. And we've had a um, a long-term project of restoring it for environmental habitat, um, ecological, leave uh, restored. But also, we're in a city, so to restore it for the citizens to have better quality spaces to recreate in and just be in, but also in everything we do to incorporate our First Nations, Ghana, understanding of the land. In addition to the environmental benefits to resilience, parks and green spaces can also help create more resilient communities at a social scale by connecting people to each other and to nature. After all, parks serve as vital connectors, excuse the redundancy, bringing both neighbors and strangers together, fostering a sense of community and providing opportunities for education and civic engagement. For most people, climate change is a problem somewhere yeah. else, you know. It's up in the Arctic, up with in the, the Arctic, polar you bears. Know, exactly, like the the, the 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 ice is melting, you know, demolishing and cutting the Amazon, and and, and it's not in my backyard, right? This is Drorben Shetrit, artist, designer, and founder of Studio Drawer and Super Nature Labs. And then, obviously, when there's a storm or something like that, we're like, oh, climate change is, re-, you know, like, but it's, it's not a daily thing, right? And, uh, and it's very hard to think about nature and the importance of nature if it's not part of your day-to-day life. So just like there are tons of research that shows that if you have a dog, you're more empathetic. Uh, if you have a tree, you're also more empathetic Absolutely, to you know, yeah. nature. So, so living in nature is going to make us more steward towards you know, protecting nature. And I think that's, that's, that's one of the things that, that, that Supernature is prioritizing is, hey, when you live with trees around you and you see that year after year something is changing rapidly winter is showing up so much later and later and later every year then the problem is in my backyard one of the main barriers of entry into climate action is the apparent distance of its effects from our everyday lives as Dora mentions Unless we are affected directly by immediate circumstances, such as being hit by a hurricane or experiencing a long period of drought in our community, climate change can often feel far away, making it hard to visualize how we as individuals or as decision makers can take concrete climate action in our cities. So when we get up close and personal and start to examine the effects of climate change on trees or on a garden in real time, whether it be through casual observation, community engagement programs, or citizen science, we are taking a large step towards becoming active participants in addressing the climate crisis in our own communities. And in order to achieve this level of education and stewardship, collaboration is key. For Green Adelaide, 
This means partnering with various organizations and stakeholders to educate communities about the challenges and benefits of nature within their city. Almost everything we do gets done in partnership and really um, Green Adelaide is behind the scenes in a lot of it um, or just trying to get two parties to work together and but that uh, manifests itself in streetscape tree planting projects um, and trying to do that you know state of the art best practice what sort of trees and again there's a whole lot of research behind how to plant a tree so doing doing a whole lot of that sort of work but also um, working with schools community groups councils to really uh, have communities better be aware of the challenges facing them uh, better understand what they might be able to do uh, better appreciate the benefits to them as yeah. so yeah we have quite a focus on ecological restoration making sure the biodiversity that's in the city remains but also um, bringing back biodiversity yeah. to the city so that is a uh, quite a key part of um, what our board does. Nature education plays a crucial role in building resilience. Through hands-on experiences, people of all ages can develop a deep understanding and appreciation for nature. And we've discussed over and over again why early childhood experiences in nature are so important for creating healthy communities. And the same applies to creating resilient communities. In the Netherlands we have at the moment a huge campaign uh, to give uh, the, the children um, really from the start when they start to discover their world, uh, so children at a certain age they, their, their world gets bigger and bigger and beginning they're only focused on their parents and the small and the teddy bear and then suddenly you know and then <laughs> in the end they, they wander around and see everything and they are surprised you know they they dream, they love it. If they see a butterfly, for them it's like a huge thing. This is Marianne Stiver, head of the Green Cities program and social scientist at Wageningen University. Uh, in the Netherlands, the uh, Institute of Nature Education is really programming experiences of children in nature so that children from the start get this feeling. Because if you, if you haven't the experience, if you don't feel it in your body, that it's important and beautiful, then you can also not cognitively uh, accept it. Urban life is very, very hectic, so if children experience nature from, from when they're young in a good way, if they can practice meditation, mindfulness from young, they, they get also themselves more resilience and more sync capacities in their own body. One educational tool parks are using to teach children about nature is growing food. Uh, a huge problem in, in urban areas nowadays is the access to healthy food. Yeah. And food is also a very important connector of people, be, between people and nature. When the food comes to the supermarket in a plastic wrapping and you have no idea, oh, is this papaya in season or is it coming from the other side of the globe? Um, it's very hard to be in touch with that. But when your papaya is growing right here and you say, well, now it's the time. Uh, I, then I pulled it out. I pulled it out, exactly. I'm connected to the source. Then you realize that, you know, hey, there's a problem. We used to get, you know, that fruit much earlier. It's the season gets shorter or, you know, any other, any other issues. So, yeah, I think 
besides that, I mean, a side point, I think it's one of the most luxurious thing is to eat off the land. So it's very important that schools, for instance, and hospitals, um, and not only for children, but children is a good start, that they experience what it's like to grow food and understand the complexities of a season and of the, the, the air quality of the soil. And that it is a miracle, actually, that things grow, so that they get this uh, lived experience of it. And I want to say something else, Please actually, do. because nature is not only fun and it's not only great and beautiful and romantic, it's also sometimes scary and... It's devastating. It can, it, it, a hurricane can, you know, sh destroy complete communities. It, it makes people insecure and unsafe. So that's also a part of nature that we have to teach our children how to become really resilient and navigate your way through the, you know, the gales or the, the, the steam, the, the, the supposed gales that nature provides. Nature is chaotic. It doesn't know right from wrong and it can destroy complete communities with the brink of an eye. And recognizing that duality and experiencing that duality in a park or in a green space is also a great tool to learn how to survive extreme weather events. Now, although parks are absolute superheroes for increasing climate resilience in cities, they themselves also face many challenges in becoming resilient to the effects of climate change within their boundaries. Let's remember warmer temperatures, too much water or none at all, are also heavy stressors in the lives of plants and animals that inhabit these public spaces. So part of transforming cities for climate resilience also means taking a look inwards. What are some of the risks faced by parks and what needs to be implemented to tackle these problems, preferably before they arise? To address this, Marianne proposes that we need to start looking at green spaces with nature as a top priority, protecting it not only for its exploitation value, but for its intrinsic importance. We need to have more attention for biodiversity and climate together because there are actually different networks worldwide and also very often local. So if you, for instance, see that people um, start a new urban area, they focus on climate adaptation, so they, they dig wadis, they want to have more trees, but they don't realize that in order to have this done resiliently, you need the biodiversity of the natural circumstances. Because we have to choose species and we have to uh, um, use species that can adapt to the changes. So if yeah. we know how our city will look like in terms of climate conditions in 40 years, automatically we maybe get a new species that have to adapt in that area. So it's very, very linked to each other. One cannot do without the other. Climate change poses very real risks for parks. Hotter temperatures increase wildfire risk and damage ecosystems. Changes in weather patterns decrease water availability and put wildlife under stress, forcing local species to compete for less food and shelter and shifting plants and animal populations. Hotter and drier conditions also bring on invasive species that can spread diseases to native species of an ecosystem, or in this case, of a park. Erosion and drought are endangering wild green spaces around the world. So when we address climate resilience and climate action, 
I think we need to zoom out and look beyond single-issue solutions, and rather look towards transforming our cities to become interconnected, nature-based systems. And how do we do that? How do we juggle increasing resilience for parks and using parks to increase resilience for cities? For Adelaide, many solutions are being triggered by recognizing it as a national park city. So National Park City, a concept developed uh, in, um, you know, came out of London and a concept where you hear people say everyone, everywhere, every day and that means they, everyone contacts and connects with green spaces everywhere in the city every day um, and so it's, it is really a people movement. Um, we're really proud of it. It is a way to change the, 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 the awareness and the values of people of the cities they live in and thinking that really anything you do in a city can that's it's involved with um, ecology, greening, um, is being part of a national park city. So um, we, we had a, a really pretty amazing launch in, in the middle of winter, which may have not been the best time to have our <laughs> launch, but um, it was a month-long festival of um, activities everything from forest bathing to yoga to art installations to you know volunteers weeding um, uh, and that was through June and so that was about 350 and again it wasn't all of Green Adelaide's yeah. um, projects it was councils and volunteer groups and so yeah, it's it's it's. I'm hoping it's like a bit of a you know a moving snowball that's just gonna get bigger and bigger. Becoming a national park city is no easy feat. For this recognition, Adelaide had to make a compelling case to the National Park City Council that the entire administration is committed to making its city greener, healthier, and wilder. This meant drafting a proposal to ensure that everyone in the city acts together to make life better for people, for wildlife and nature. But this decision has played out really well, and the designation has allowed Adelaide to redirect public policy and city efforts for this new common purpose. The National Park City movement is just getting started, and the foundation is on a mission to realize 25 National Park Cities by 2025. I think we're going to need an entire new episode to explore that mission. But this is one of many great examples of city transformations for resilience and for futures based on nature. Now, for Dror, designing for resilience means rebuilding communities almost from scratch with a nature-based approach. But, you know, if I, if I were to be a little harsh and say that, unfortunately, a lot of the people that are thinking about the future of, of the built environment are not prioritizing human experiences and life experiences enough, right? They would say, oh, um, Look how great we've made the transportation, uh, you know, system. How Everybody efficient. Can, how efficient it is, you know, and how smart the city is. You know, the city is so smart. You have sensors <laughs> everywhere. And I cringe when I hear that because do I really want to live in a ugly, you know, smart city <laughs> or technologically advanced city? No, I want to live in a 
healthy city. I want to live in a beautiful city and in a diverse city. And, and you know, when I use the word beautiful, um, you know, we can argue about style, we can argue about taste and colors and materials and, you know, architecture. But it's very hard to argue about nature, nature's beauty. You know, I've never seen, you know, somebody say, oh, this is a really ugly flower and this is a really <laughs> ugly tree. Uh, you know, we shouldn't have trees. At you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when we think of design in general, for many, many, many year years, we used the term human-centric design. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, we realized, wait, maybe we were wrong. Maybe it's not about we at the top of the pyramid. And maybe we are part of a much bigger ecosystem of life. So putting life at the center and saying life-centric design it means something completely different. Yeah. Addressing the climate crisis is going to take absolutely all that we've got. And as our experts mentioned, we're going to have to take a hard look at how we are addressing our cities and reimagine how we can coexist with nature. But when we do that, I am confident that we'll be able to create more resilient parks, more resilient cities, and especially more resilient futures. This marks the end of today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss next week's very last episode of the season. And please leave us a review to help reach more park enthusiasts around the world and to let us know how we can improve for season two. And if you want to connect with like-minded individuals and you don't know where to start, visit worldurbanparks.org. We have a huge community of diverse park professionals that are so eager to connect and join forces in promoting the world of parks. How is your community increasing its climate resilience? And how can you help? Go and find out. Thank you for listening to Pod Parks by World Urban Parks. Pod Parks is written and hosted by Alice Landin, produced by Vitoria Martin and Luis Roman, sound engineering by Vladimir Yanez. Don't forget to visit worldurbanparks.org and explore the resources our online community has for you. Get out, explore, connect. <laughs>